This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A lot of people have become cynical about uh, politics. Uh, lots will say it's due to uh, the manner in which politicians conduct themselves uh, in the public forum when they are debating and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so anyone um, who speaks disrespectfully to Hamilton City Council may be booted from its, uh, its public meetings. City is revamping its procedure bylaw, which looks at how City Hall meetings operate. Some residents say this is, will violate people's right to criticize their government. Can you criticize your government without being disrespectful? I guess that's the big question. <laughs> uh, former city councillor Brad Clark told CHML's Bill Kelly the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects people who criticize government decisions. They have to start looking at some of these rules coming out of council uh, through a constitutional lens. Uh, it's rarely been done at the city. Uh, I don't even know if we have a city uh, lawyer who uh, is an expert in the constitution. But the charter gives specific rights and freedoms to individual citizens and Council must comply with the Charter. All right. I mean, that's understandable. That all makes sense. But where's the balance? Where's the fine line? Can you just stand up there and call somebody a pinhead for the rest of the day? You know what? You're a pinhead. You're just a stupid pinhead for what you just did. I don't know. Like... Calling names? Oh, that's it. You're out. Where do you draw the line? Uh, Cameron Kretsch is with us. He's a Ward 2 candidate. Resident has been studying this issue and is with us now. Cameron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So what are your thoughts? Do we need this? Can we criticize government without being disrespectful? Yeah, we can criticize government without being disrespectful. And I think that it's important to sort of hone in a little bit on exactly what the bylaw is saying. And it's it's focused on kinds of the decisions of council and the decisions of councillors, and that's the thing that it's saying we can't be disrespectful about. And we can't be critical of what's happening in government. Um, of course, there's a code of conduct and rules of decorum, which are kind of separate from that, right? Uh, to go to your example, um, shouting, hollering, being abusive, um, uttering hate speech, those kinds of things aren't necessarily what we're talking about. So define this. Find the balance for us. Define it. Um, the balance between... Being disrespectful and the code of conduct and what you're talking about. Right. So being disrespectful in terms of what they're proposing right now in the bylaw is about, let's just say the council makes a decision and says, we, uh, you know, we want to approve this, this motion. A citizen right now under the proposal couldn't come forward and disagree with that, um, couldn't be disrespectful of that and say that they thought council made a bad choice. So I think the, there's only one real compromise here, which is to take that proposed language out. Um, that would keep things the way they were in that same section of the bylaw, um, and it wouldn't change things to being any different than they are right now. So this is about somebody saying, I think you made a bad decision. That's part of what it's about, right? The word disrespectful, though, is very vague. Well, that's, that's, what, I'm tr- that's what I'm trying to decipher, is what's the difference between this and the code of conduct that says you can't call someone names? This is in a section in the bylaw under order and decorum. Um, it used to just apply to councillors, to be honest, Scott. So what it used to say was, hey, councillors must behave themselves in a certain manner. And what changed here to make this an issue, a charter issue, is that it now says anyone who attends a council meeting is held to the same standard. So I think the clerk just has to go back, review with the city lawyer, 
um, and, and realize that this change um, is too drastic and goes in the wrong direction. Uh, why is it too drastic? Why does it go in the wrong direction? Give us an example of it being abused. Yeah, I think Brad focused on, a bit on this when he was speaking earlier today. It's because it violates uh, the Charter. It doesn't allow people to speak freely about their city government, and it's anti-democratic. Uh, people should be able to come forward and say um, that they disagree with things or think things should be changed or think the council made a bad choice uh, without feeling like they're going to be ejected from the chamber. Uh, wh- how did we get here? I mean, what you're saying is it's obviously common sense. Um, every citizen should be able to go up and speak their mind and not be worried that they're going to be uh, uh, turfed out simply because they disagree with a decision. That's a really great question, um, how we got here. And I think it's still a mystery. Uh, we don't know who, which individual counselor or member of staff, I have no idea, who submitted this request to be changed. Um, I was involved a little bit in November of last year in terms of delegating. I submitted many comments to the city clerk. This wasn't one of them. Um, to change the bylaw to make it clearer. But I'm not sure who else had a voice in this process. Uh, the bylaw indicates that every four years, the city has to review it and make changes. So the clerk's office collects changes over the four-year period and then tends to make them at the end. So I'm really curious, too, to know who wanted this change made. Does this sound to you like somebody's just looking for a way to rubber stamp things and move them along? I'm not sure. Without knowing the person who's doing like what, this or what, their motivations, I, right? Yeah, it's hard to say. I guess I'm asking, Cameron, what would be the reason for doing this? What's the motivation behind it? Um. Like, is, is, is it to bring decorum back to uh, the chamber? Is it to uh, hurry things along? Is it to move forward your own agenda? I don't understand why this is an issue unless it's getting to the point where it's getting so out of hand that it's stopping business from getting done. Yeah, I think that the way to understand this is to look at other parts of the bylaw which speak to similar things. There's another part that's also new that says things like, if you've spoken to a committee about a certain issue you can't come back to that committee in the future and speak about that issue again. So what this all seems to be designed to do is to limit the ability for citizens to engage their municipal government. Um, That's how I read this. I think there are a number of other things in the bylaw, which again, all point to the same kind of thing from happening. But in terms of the motive, um, I don't think it's it's clear what the the reason is beyond sort of just trying to read this document and, and interpret it the best we can. Could it be to move the process along, to expedite it? I mean, we always have to allow for public input. Of course, that's what democracy is all about. But is this to speed up the process, perhaps? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I can't see how it would speed the process up, because I think it's going to unnecessarily tie the city up in legal proceedings. People are going to come out to delegate just to oppose this. I think that it's um, not helping things. If the city is looking to expedite matters, it could do things like uh, schedule lunch breaks and have end times for their meetings. So this kind of advice has been given to council um, and the committee about uh, ways to expedite things. And this certainly doesn't seem to help. Um, if that's what the motive is, I'm, I'm confused. Uh, where do you think this is going? Willie, do you think in the end you'll find out the source of this? I don't think so. I think that at this point, the subcommittee has asked staff and the city's legal clerks to look over this information, review the concerns brought forward at delegations yesterday, and to come back with a report. So when that report comes back, I think we'll get a bit more clarity as to what the thinking was, but it's likely that the changes will be repealed, and um, we won't be dealing with this issue in August when that committee meets again. 
So uh, is the use of offensive words or unparliamentary language, is that is that something that's an issue here? That doesn't seem to be related to the same issue. This Those just seems to be another, in different parts. It's right? a side uh, issue to it all. Yeah, there are a few things for sure that, uh, not just this, that kind of limit the democratic process a little bit. Um, and, and this is one of those things. The unparliamentary language thing is pretty standard, um, and I don't think that's what this is about at all. Do you think there's an appetite for this on council? Do you think that uh, uh, th- this is something that they'll want to move forward with? That's a good question. Council hasn't deliberated on this yet. So far, it's been a subcommittee that's below a committee of council, right? So where this is kind of being discussed right now is at a lower granularity. I don't think that um, based on public tweets of councillors, if I use that as an inference, I don't think people are happy about this at all. Uh, Is this something that resonates with the public or just activists who follow City Hall politics? I think that anyone who's interested in having a dialogue with their councillor, with council, with their municipal government will be concerned about this. I think that, sure, there are people who have a close eye on what's happening in council on a regular basis, and those people may have more to say about it. Um, but the reaction's been pretty widespread from people I've talked to and other reactions I've seen to be shocked that we'd even be considering this. Are you and su- that we didn't. Go ahead, sorry. Are, are you surprised by the councillors that have spoken up against this and, and, and are asking, what's going on here? No, not at all. Uh, we, you know, council doesn't always know what's happening uh, every moment in every subcommittee. So for and the amount of reading to do for this particular issue is quite a lot. I'm not surprised that um, most people uh, wouldn't know this was happening. Most councillors wouldn't know this was happening because it hasn't been brought up to the council level as of yet. How right? do you think so the pu- how do you think the public would feel thinking, wow, are they down there talking about this stuff? Are they down there uh, spending their time doing this? I think the public would be discouraged to find out that um, we didn't do our due diligence to ensure that before this came into a public forum, it was vetted for things like charter right, uh, rights and freedoms, those kinds of things, those kinds of concerns. That's what I think the public will be concerned about. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, I think, uh, like I said a bit earlier, I think that the legal staff, city clerk's offices and other folks are going to review this. And I think, and well, I hope, that they're going to realize that there were some errors made. Um, because I don't know the intention behind these things, it's hard for me to understand how easy or hard they are to undo. But it's simply a matter of, of sorry, providing another version of this bylaw that doesn't have that content in it and for that to be approved by the committee and sent to council. So I think in August we'll see something new. So language changed, you're fine with that? Yeah, the language is what this is all about at the end of the day. Bylaws are all written down and it's about specific language and ensuring that that language reflects the laws of Canada. Um, and right now, from my perspective, we're really in dangerous territory. What are the parts of the language that you need replaced? Well, there's that section in 7.1 that I think we've talked about, order and decorum, which says sort of all attendees must do X or must do Y, um, and they can't be disrespectful of, of members of council. So I think that's where we have to uh, be very careful. But then again, does that not go back to the code of conduct? These are different things, right? When, we, when the decision was made to turn... Um, the responsibility from just members of council over to the general public. Right, right. That's when we started getting into a weird area. Right. And it may not have been intentional, for all I know. Right. When you read the language, it wasn't a huge change um, that made this happen. It was really just a change of a few words. Right. But when you focus on anyone who attends a meeting, that's a huge group of people. 
Right. So that's the problem. And obviously the, the spirit of, of what this was intended to is lost in that. Uh, fascinating. Uh, is, uh, is this slowing us down from the business of the day or is this worth focusing on? And I'm repeating myself here, but again, does the, is this relevant to the average taxpayer? Yes. And the reason why I think it's really important to the average taxpayer is because this document governs how this entire city runs, how our decision-making happens, um, what way we make decisions, how, who gets to make them, and when. And if we're not careful about ensuring that these kinds of documents um, are written correctly and have the perspective of residents in mind, then we go down a very dangerous road where um, government um, is not observing the laws. Cameron Kretsch has been with us, Ward 2 candidate, resident, and has been studying the issue. Hamilton City Council looking at changing the rules uh, in various ways and how business is conducted down there. Cameron, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The collateral damage from U.S. tariffs have already arrived in Canada. Is that the case? Uh, interesting column by John Ibison in the National Post today saying just that, that the collateral damage from U.S. tariffs has already arrived in Canada and goes on to say the alarming testimony before an emergency meeting of the International Trade Committee suggests that without government assistance, previously healthy businesses will go under in weeks. To talk more about all of this, Michael Veal is with us, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Hi, Scott. So uh, are we already feeling uh, these Trump tariffs? And is it as bad as, as what this column suggests, that, that previously healthy businesses could go down in weeks? Uh, I believe so, yes. I think, in fact, we've been feeling it for quite some time now because even the threat of trade policy can affect the investment decisions of firms. And a lot of firms have decided not to invest in Canada while they wait for the smoke to clear on this trade dispute. Why not invest in Canada until this all settles? Right, because if you're trying to uh, penetrate the U.S. market, and then there's uncertainty about being able to penetrate the U.S. market, uh, that means the investment is uh, uncertain and wise, and, and in that case, business people will typically wait and see. Uh, we've certainly seen Harley-Davidson in the crosshairs of Donald Trump this past week, at one time using this as a, as a supporter, now, of course, uh, threatening to tax them if they move uh, American jobs uh, offshore. Uh, how long before we hear more, of Harley, uh, more from companies like Harley-Davidson? Uh, should these companies not be uniting at some point and saying, hey, listen, we're heading for a train wreck here? I don't know about other companies. Uh, Harley-Davidson has actually been a very special position. They have their head office in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin was a, uh, a state that went for Trump by a very narrow margin. So they were deliberately singled out by the European tariffs on, on motorcycles. Uh, and so, of course, they're just going to try to get around the tariffs. The trouble is, is that they're in this position where either way they go, it's a rock or a hard place. They either get Trump or they get the uh, European tariffs, and uh, neither way is very favorable for them. I don't know that there are a lot of other companies who are in exactly that same position, uh, but uh, nonetheless, it is true that the U.S. firms that have been more or less singled out for this uh, type of tariff, uh, for example, the bourbon manufacturers, uh, they're all going to suffer at least to some degree because of them. Um, are people finding this hard to believe? Um, is this actually going to happen, or is this just hardball rhetoric? Uh, is everybody just waiting for him to pull back on this or cooler heads prevail? Where's this going? Well, of course, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
if you want my guess, my guess is that it's it's not going to pull back. That it, that we're in for a pretty serious trade conflict. Uh, but I hope I'm wrong. So what happens with this trade conflict? How will life be different on both sides of the border? Well, if the next uh, tariff up is the auto industry tariffs, uh, this, of course, will be uh, a very strong economic blow against Canada. It'll hurt the United States as well. Uh, but in all these things, as apparently Mr. Trump has figured out right from the beginning, the uh, blow will be harder initially, at least, uh, for the other country, the United States, uh, I think will suffer in the long term from these things, but probably never to the same degree that uh, Canada or other countries will, uh, essentially because the smaller country loses in these things. So will Americans feel this in any way? Will there, will there be any backlash from their part? Because we hear so much about our economies being interwoven and that this hurts as many, if not more, than it helps. How are Americans feeling about this? How will it affect them moving forward? Well, because trade, while important to the United States, is so much less, right. relatively less important than it is in Canada, right. they'll feel it, but less. Right. And, uh, and some Americans will, at least in the short term, benefit. Uh, if you have, are in a plant and that plant expands or puts on an extra production run uh, because uh, there's more domestic market, because there's not tariffs, the people in those plants will think, oh, this is great, we've got more employment and better wages. But, of course, the long-run effect is that prices of those products go up in the United States, uh, the United States becomes a less competitive producer in those industries, and in the long run, that doesn't do them any good either. Uh, where are the Democrats on this, who were initially against a lot of these trade agreements decades ago? How do they, how do they combat this? Well, I think you'll see that uh, a lot of Democrats will not combat it. They'll, they'll go along. Um, they will not choose this issue as being one to run against President Trump. The fact of the matter is that there has always been an anti-trade population, anti-trade uh, representation within the United States, a constituency, uh, and that constituency is being played to. Uh, and if you look at the key states uh, coming up in the, uh, even in the 2018 midterms, places like Ohio, uh, you will find that, for example, the, the Senate candidate for the Democrats uh, in Ohio is going to be running on a pretty much pro-Trump platform with respect to trade. Uh, that's not where they want to put the wedge between them and uh, Trump and the Republicans. So does Trump have a point in all of this rhetoric and all of this bluster? Is there a point? Is there a, is there a common ground? I think it's always been possible for a U.S. president uh, to seize on some of these special powers that he has been granted, including the the power to put on these so-called security tariffs um, and play to the constituency in, in the United States that is opposed uh, to trade and is opposed to immigration. And I think in the short term, there can be apparent gains from that. Um, in the long term, uh, what you're doing is essentially consigning your country to be less competitive on the world market and less influential in, in world affairs. So you don't think the Democrats will challenge them on this at all? You know, I, I, I don't. I'm not a, an expert in political science, right. but in, in terms of the economics of it, uh, the problem is that the, the beneficiaries of tariffs will really experience them. They'll really understand that their plant is getting extra production because the tariffs are protecting them. Um, and they will not see 
that this will lead to a position of long-term deterioration of the U.S. economy. Why does and, this mean so much to Trump if, in fact, they don't trade as much? Uh, you know, I mean, it certainly means more to us or smaller countries than it does to them because they're a larger market for all of them. If this is such small potatoes, why pick this fight? Well, I think that there's a perception in, in the United States and in, in some of the key states that, that appear to be the ones that will determine the next presidential election, uh, places like Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. Uh, in those states, they think about all the jobs they've lost to Mexico. Yeah. And they want those jobs back. And the problem is, is that one of the reasons they lost those jobs was Mexico. But if those plants had stayed in the United States and not gone to Mexico, all, would have, all that would have happened is that they would have become increasingly automated. Yeah. And, and a huge percentage of the jobs that are being lost are in fact not being lost to Mexico or Canada or anywhere else, but they're being lost to increased automa- automation. The fact is it requires many fewer people to make a ton of steel or many fewer people to make an automobile yeah. than was the case 30 years ago. And that's, that's the problem that we're all coming to grips with. And the United States is, is I think, to some extent, scapegoating trade uh, when the problem is deeper. And what's to say once these companies get more production due to... Uh, protectionist measures, why wouldn't they automate? Well, they will. Uh, and that will be the long-term so trend. The, At the moment, the U.S. economy is going pretty well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's only these pockets, but those are the pockets that uh, apparently are going to decide uh, the president's uh, presidential election in 2020, and that's they're getting the political attention. Uh, Canada's retaliation, then, is this like, uh, I don't know, throwing tomatoes against a wall? I mean, does it have any impact at all? I mean, many are saying that the the Prime Minister should be a little bit more stern on all of this. Is there much he can do? I I think this is very much a matter of judgment, and I think you could get a lot of different opinions. Uh, In my view, we're, we're also between a rock and a hard place. There are not a lot of good answers. I think um, to be taken seriously as a country, we have to go through with the July 1 tariffs. Uh, we said we're going to do them, and whether that was the right decision or not, I think we've got to go ahead. If there are auto tariffs, I think we have to pro- retaliate. It's, it's going to be a mess, uh, but I don't see as that there's a way out anyway. So at the moment, uh, I think that's what we're likely to do. Uh, would it have been better for us to dodge the whole thing? Well, probably yes, but it's not entirely clear it was dodgeable, right? The, yeah. It looked like uh, Mr. Trump wanted to have this fight, and eventually he found it. That was my next question. Uh, was it a matter of time before we just got here? Um, uh, we, we've talked about NAFTA and, and for months, for weeks, and, and how this has been, been moving so slowly and all of these bigger issues pushed to the back of the bus, sort of speak. Uh, were we heading here? Was this predictable? Yeah, I think that's what I think. The, um, the United States, uh, as I said, has this constituency that uh, does not want free trade. Uh, Mr. Trump, in his election platform, said that NAFTA was going to go, and now we're here. Uh, will companies just ride this out? I've, heard, I've talked to some experts that say, um, you know, be calm, trade on. Uh, are companies looking at this and saying to themselves, there's an election here, and if he wins that one, he's out by here? It, and is that a strategy? Well, uh, some companies will clearly ride it out. Um, 
the tariffs are, aren't going to be universal. Um, the Canadian dollar has weakened. Uh, depending on how this turns out, it could weaken some more. Uh, and that, of course, helps the competitive advantage of Canadian firms in the United States and it makes it harder for U.S. firms to export into Canada. So, as always, there's going to be winners and losers. The thing is, is that if we really get the auto industry involved in this, that's a pretty big loser. And while it might be that over time there are things that would happen in the economy that would mitigate the damage, in the short term the damage is going to be pretty bad. It's also hard for a government to, to fix, fix all the damage, in other words, to make sure that all the, the losers still stay around. Right. So I think it's going to be a mess, uh, but it will be a mess that will be visited differentially on different firms. Some firms will have no trouble. Some firms will even turn out to benefit from it. Um, but on balance, the average firm, if you like, is going to suffer. You said, uh, you used the phrase, it depends how this turns out. How can it be positive if all the indicators are pointing in the direction that it is? I mean, is that being overly optimistic? It does, you know, again, I, I go back to this, uh, the, this quote in the, uh, in the National Post, previously healthy businesses will go under in weeks. That's frightening. Well, some are, I think. I don't think that is an exaggeration. The question, of course, is how many. Uh, you used the phrase earlier, you know, will cooler heads prevail? Cooler heads still could prevail, uh, and then this thing could de-escalate in the same way it's, it's in effect escalated. Although I think Canada has been pretty good about this. We, we have just retaliated. We have not... And we thought we were very well planned. I mean, everybody was going down and doing the appropriate work. Everybody was working together. Uh, Canadians thought, yeah, no problem. Uh, we'll have this all smoothed out. And then the spat between Justin Trudeau and Trump, and now we're not sure what the heck's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you look at what actually was said in this uh, press conference uh, that Trudeau had that seemed to, to spark the Trump response, it looks awfully benign. It looks like yeah. you know, standard political commentary. Surely a president of another country would understand uh, that there had to be a little bit of uh, indication that Canada was going to stick up for its own uh, in, in such a uh, negotiation. And then, of course, it it wasn't received that way at all, apparently, or maybe it was just that Mr. Trump was looking for an excuse to pick this particular fight. I, I'm not sure which. I don't know. The, it's easy to tell. So uh, say this keeps all moving forward. Uh, as you mentioned, everybody's worried that eventually a torpedo is going to hit the auto industry. Uh, what does a win look like for Donald Trump in Canada? So if Donald Trump gets a win here, what does it mean for us? What will life be like here? Well, um, if, if, if it goes the way that it looks like it's going right now, then there will be immediate pretty serious job losses in Canada. Uh, it, I would not say catastrophic at a national scale, but in this region in particular, uh, really serious. Uh, you'll start to see particularly auto, plant, uh, auto part manufacturers in, in serious trouble. Uh, that because of course they they sell their product back and forth across the border, uh, it will it will not be good. Um, the Canadian dollar will probably fall some more. Uh, that would help a little bit in this in this uh, problem, but we we will be poorer as a country. What would no what would make Donald Trump change his direction on this? Well, I guess. Uh, some people are saying that if we do something spectacular on dairy, uh, that might 
because that's the, the one thing that he keeps raising. Uh, that's not even a big expensive. issue in all of this. I mean, the number's big, 270% the tariff and blah, 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 but is it that big of a deal? Well, no. In fact, uh, we import about half a billion dollars more dairy products than we export to the United States. So in that particular uh, category, uh, we're in trade deficit. And in fact, overall, our trade relationship with the United States is, to all intents and purposes, pretty close to a balance. Uh, so it isn't that big a deal, but it's the one that he, he looks at. Uh, it turns out to be a, another Wisconsin issue, and Wisconsin's one of the states he's looking at. Uh, to do something there uh, for us would be expensive. Uh, it is arguable that it's something that we have to do anyway eventually, uh, that our, our dairy policy has not been a successful policy over the last roughly 40 years. Uh, we have to do it in a way, of course, that, uh, in, well, in my view, of course, that does not leave dairy farmers... Uh, being the people who bear the brunt of this trade dispute. Uh, so it's a very difficult piece of policy to do, but more, more or less we can probably solve that one with money. Uh, if we did that in short order and said that was the basis for us coming to an agreement with the United States, arguably that would be the thing that gets us to a deal. Uh, I don't see us being able to do that, and of course it's by no means clear that that would be the last demand even if we met that particular demand. Uh, many were ha- have said that you know the midterm elections in the U.S. are going to be uh, a key element in all of these discussions, depending on which way it goes. Uh, a few months ago, most would say, "Well, that's where he's going to lose it." Uh, now, with this, with you know his his thoughts on trade and, and protectionism and such, he seems to be gaining even more popularity. Um, can you see him going into those midterms and coming out more powerful? Is this, reson- is this resonating with people? Or is it hurting enough Americans that they'll react that way? So it, it's possible. I think it was always the odds that the Republicans would retain the Senate because just the way the numbers work and the number of seats uh, each side is defending at the moment, uh, that balance favors the Republicans. So they'd have to do awfully badly to lose the Senate, and they probably will not do that badly. Um, in the House, I think what you'll find is that... Uh, the Democrats may actually do pretty well. And one of the ways they do well is at the House level, um, the candidates can be pretty flexible. And some of the Democratic candidates are going to come across as being relatively in favor of the actions that the president is taking. That's my point. Does that does that change anything for the other countries? Does that change anything for Canada? I mean, this seems to be the one thing that both sides of this wacky House agree on. Uh, okay, so I agree with that. I think what could well happen is the Democrats could retake the House uh, but it will not change the balance of power yeah. when it comes to trade issues. Um, I think the, f- the fundamental problem is that Americans as a whole, in my view wrongly, um, are not convinced of the advantage of international trade. Hmm. Um, they think that a Buy America policy works, and I, I'm not entirely sure how they can do that, and, and it's sort of obvious to anybody who uses a cell phone that you, products from other countries are extremely useful. Uh, But uh, Americans, I think, um, are not, by and large, convinced of the the value of international relations. And so there's always been this possibility for a particular politician to exploit this, and uh, that's what we're seeing. And, you know, you really can't blame them when they're seeing job loss. I mean, at the end of the day, they're saying, what's in this for me, right? Yeah, but the United States unemployment rate is pretty close to a record low. Mm, Good point, Uh, yeah. they're, they're, They're doing pretty well. 
the problem is that the manufacturing jobs all over the world yeah. are declining, yeah. uh, everywhere. And in the United States, they basically say, well, the jobs are going to Mexico. Uh, but that's only a part of the problem. Yeah, it's the automation. Uh, a larger part of the problem is the change in the manufacturing process. And that means that people whose job it was to be on an assembly line, uh, and they've been there for 15 years, um, they, are, they are people who are really going to suffer from this change. There's no question that, that there's going to be change that affects them that's, that's undesirable for them. Uh, but it's not a question nearly so much of international trade as a question of changes in technology. Michael Veal has been with us, professor of the Department of Economics, McMaster University, the collateral damage from U.S. tariffs already arriving in Canada. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks. Very much. Very glad to be here. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. With the Supreme Court in the U.S. supporting Donald Trump's travel ban, what do Canadian travelers need to know ahead of making adventures down south? To talk more about all of this, Giddy Mamam is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP. Or sorry, that's Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, immigration lawyer, and is with us now. Giddy, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. Is there anything different here other than this is now, I guess, set in stone? Uh, It's a proclamation, and the proclamation can be amended or rescinded any time. It's not necessarily uh, a proclamation with a a certain deadline. So right now, this is what it is. Um, You know, the the, the Supreme Court uh, felt no reason to uh, intervene. What is the difference now between what we initially started with that got us to here? Uh, How watered down is this? Is it watered down? No, it's, it's not watered down. Uh, you know, this really is a travel ban 3.0. It's gone through a number of modifications uh, by, uh, by the White House. Uh, and this one is the one that, uh, you know, uh, it, it had already gone to the Supreme Court uh, on an injunction. And uh, from the reading of the court, uh, it was pretty obvious that when the court heard the entire case uh, that they were going to go this way. Um, the court is uh, uh, remarkably divided. It's unbelievable how divided it seems uh, right now over this case. You know, I'd, I'd be very nervous walking around the halls of the Supreme Court right now because it looks like some of these judges are just not um, seeing this uh, uh, at all the same way. Uh, and there seems to be some animosity here. You know, normally one of the judges, when, when a judge is dissents, he usually says that he's uh, respectfully dissenting. But uh, two of the judges, uh, you know, yank that word out. Uh, it's a very, very divided court on a very, very hot issue. Your thought on the decision? Well, uh, frankly, I fully expected this decision. I, I didn't. I, I never had any doubt that it would go this way. Um, it is a very tight, you know, decision, five to four. So you would think, you know, how, you know, why would I be confident? Um, the fact of the matter is, when, when all is said and done, um, there is only one person in the United States who gets regular security briefings. Uh, they are confidential. They are very, very, uh, you know, very top secret. The only person who gets that is the president. And the way the, uh, um, the immigration laws are in the United States, you know, officers get to make certain decisions. And then the president gets to make decisions, and he is given the power to make decisions affecting the admission of classes of people. And he could make those decisions based on top-secret information, which no one else has, including the Supreme Court. 
So it never occurred to me that the Supreme Court would attempt to second-guess a president who has information that the court will never have. So at the end of the day, it would be reckless for the Supreme Court to say, we know better than you. We think that this, this policy mm. uh, is not a good idea. How could they possibly say that when they don't get those security briefings? So basically, they said that, look, we're not, we're not agreeing necessarily with some of his views. We have to look at this not as President Trump, but as a presidency. And that means going forward, when Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States, do we want a president who attempts to protect uh, American nationals from foreign risks? Do we want that president to have his hands tied uh, by considerations uh, that the Supreme Court may have, which you know really don't affect him? His job is to protect the American people. Does he really want the U.S. Supreme Court on his back when he has to make those decisions? Hmm. And, and that's how the uh, Immigration Naturalization Act was, uh, was uh, conceived. They specifically created language giving him a wide, wide field of discretion in this area. And him uh, access to that information. Uh, Donald's tr- Donald Trump's reasoning for this security, saying that these places don't adequ- adequately screen uh, their citizens before they put them on planes and send them to the United States. Is that valid? In some cases, uh, that's, the, that's the reasoning. In some cases, there's other reasoning. For example, uh, in the case of Iran, one of the things uh, it says is that uh, Iran refuses... Uh, to take back uh, its nationals that are deported from the United States. So if the United States deports Iran, Iran, according to international law, is required to take them back, but resists. So because of that, that was one of the reasons why Iran was put on this list. Um, This list is a combination of uh, an attempt to protect the United States from threats. As you said, they don't do a, a proper vetting and identification uh, screening when issuing documents, but it's also a political uh, document. It is punishing Iran for not taking back uh, Iranians who are deported from the United States. So there are two two factors that the president, in his discretion, um, uh, is important uh, to uh, identify when determining whether or not uh, you know Iranians and others are going to be allowed into the United States and on what basis on what basis and with what visas. Uh, how does Canada react to citizens coming from these countries? And is if there's a threat to the United States, is there one to Canada? Well, we, we don't have exactly this kind of system. Uh, we have a minister who can impose uh, visa requirements, and, and, and he does, he or she does. And they just, you know, willy-nilly decide, you know, based on the information, we think that this country presents a security threat. Or they they consider that uh, that country to be a source of irritation for Canada. So even though they're not a security threat, a lot of their people come here. They stay illegally. They have, you know, uh, false documents. They make refugee claims. Whatever it might be, and we slap a visa requirement on that country. But you have to you have to always remember that, uh, and the Supreme Court uh, made it very clear as well in, in this decision. The the state. Uh, has uh, sovereign power. And sovereign power says that we don't need to accept anybody we don't want. And officers uh, can make that decision. If a person is coming to Canada, uh, we can refuse that person's admission 
uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't give any explanations for that. Uh, and that's always underlying this stuff. So even though, generally speaking, people from Iran um, you know, are banned uh, right now, uh, tomorrow, just because the ban has been lifted, doesn't mean a particular Iranian will be able to enter Canada just because the ban has been removed. Officers always have that discretion to refuse. What about those from those countries arriving here in Canada first, then making their way to the United States? Won't make any difference. If, they're, if, uh, if they are seeking to enter the United States on a travel document of one of these uh, affected countries, uh, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, North Korea, and Venezuela, uh, they're going to have a problem. If that same person is also a national of Canada, that means they're a Canadian citizen, and they travel on their Canadian passport, they're not going to have any trouble. Hmm. So basically, people from these countries are not allowed in the United States. How do they get around this? Well, uh, they can apply for a waiver. Um, and a waiver normally is used... Um, to overcome uh, any inadmissibility, which is generally a criminal inadmissibility, or maybe you've been deported from the United States or something, and you need a waiver to overcome that ground of inadmissibility. Um, Right now, the inadmissibility is going to be coming not from your conduct, right, but now your nationality uh, or your relationship to someone um, who's a national. So... um, it's going to be a, a, a waiver process. This process can take anywhere from six months, 12 months, even 18 months. Uh, the press has, uh, in, in one case, has reported as $585. The fee has gone up. It's actually $930 U.S., you know, which is the equivalent of over $1,200. Um, it's not so much the cost which is the problem, but it's the delay, right? When you apply for one of these things, uh, you have to demonstrate now, uh, not just you're kind of a nice person and you've never done anything terrible, you have to show that uh, if, if the United States doesn't let you in, it's going to create some sort of undue hardship. Um, so you don't, you, you don't have to prove just, not only that you have to prove you're not a threat, but you also have to prove that someone is going to suffer some undue hardship. And sometimes you just can't do that. Like if you're just going to Disneyland or something like that, hmm. No one's going to suffer undue hardship if you yeah. don't go to Disneyland, right? Uh, so even if you're able to establish that you're not a security threat, if you can't establish undue hardship, you're not getting in. Now, how, how the immigration authorities are going to be viewing these things, uh, how, are, how much are they going to insist on the standard undue hardship test, I don't know, um, because this is a bit of a, new, uh, of a new thing for all of us. So we'll just have to wait and see. So uh, for those affected who may be living in Canada, is it one of these waivers that will need it? How will this affect uh, those in Canada? Um, are, are you talking about permanent residents? or Anybody affiliated with any of these countries at all? Well, like I said, if, if you have a Canadian passport and you travel on that passport, you should be good to go. Uh, if you're a permanent resident of Canada... Um, and you're on uh, you're a national of one of these countries because you'd be traveling on on that passport. You can't travel on a on a permanent resident card normally. Uh, you are going to need a waiver to the states. So you're going to have to do yeah. a lot of planning. Uh, you're going to have to think ahead and apply early and you know spend some money on the application. And the, it may or may not be successful. How many people would this affect? Does this affect a lot of people? 
I think so. You know, uh, we have a very large Iranian population uh, in Canada. Uh, we certainly have a lot of Somalis. Uh, increasingly, you know, the Syrian population um, is growing. And we, we have uh, some Venezuelans here and there. So, you know, it's, uh, it's going to affect people. Um, I don't know that this travel ban is going to stay in this, in this condition um, for a long time because, uh, you know, the, this particular version of the ban specifically says what the problem is with each of these countries. So I imagine that those countries, maybe with the exception of uh, Iran, are probably going to do what is necessary to fix the problem identified in this ban because it's going to be in their interest to do so. Their nationals are going to want to be able to travel to the United States when possible. So uh, maybe with the exception uh, of Iran, I think the other countries are going to start working towards whatever ails the United States about their, um, their country in terms of security, etc., and, and then, and then that will, you know, that's the stick that uh, Donald Trump is using, and hopefully it will create some uh, some changes uh, that will appeal to the uh, to the White House. Uh, in the end, will this work? Will he get the security he requires? Will he will he get these uh, this process put in place? Will he? Can you see him saying, "All right, they've done enough. We're rele- we're relaxing these bans." A hundred percent. Uh, look, uh, whether you like them or not, the Americans are a very important trade partner. Yeah. Uh, and if your people cannot travel to the United States, uh, that means projects that would normally be done cannot be done. So I think that there's going to be a very, very strong interest in making the Americans happy with respect to the issues that have been raised in this travel ban. I think you have to remember, and I think this is what Donald Trump was uh, was campaigning on. The United States is, you know, has been a superpower. It wields tremendous power. It is a force to be reckoned with, uh, and he is going to now exercise uh, those powers. He's going to wield that power globally and say, "Look, you know, you can do whatever you want in your country. If you don't care who you issue a passport to, you don't check identification, you don't check backgrounds." That's up to you. But I can tell you one thing, they're not coming into our country. Hmm. And so that is going to be a real... You know, when uh, most people would hear that, Giddy, they'd say, well, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Well, yes, except when you add the word Donald, the, the name Donald Trump to it. And then all of a sudden you've politicized, you, 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 you hear that and you remember all of the, you know, we're yeah. banning all Muslims, you yeah. know, those Mexicans, all those right. phrases, all those nasty things that you heard get commingled with this, yeah. and then you don't hear it anymore. You just have dust in your eyes, and you can't, you can't see straight. But the, but the idea is absolutely right. You know, you want to have a little tin pot regime over there, and you give a passport to everybody, anybody who wants one, and, you know, you don't, you know, you, you know, you don't use the right types of passports, the very secure passports that we have today. You want to issue a passport on the back of an envelope or something like that. That's your problem. But we're not taking these people into our country. And so I think, uh, you know, uh, as a lawyer, we, we try to look at the issue and not the dust and the politics. But I got to tell you, I'm, uh, uh, you know, when I read this decision, I, I just I can only imagine what is what it looks like in that Supreme Court right now in the United States. The dissenting opinions were vicious. 
Um, and it's just not characteristic of a, of a unified bench. It, 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 unfortunately, it looks like the Supreme Court has been affected by this this terrible, terrible uh, narrative and dialogue that is now going on in the United States and, 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 and in parts of the world. You said that these countries, it's in their best interest to make these changes. Considering this was a technicality on getting a vote, which, you, as you mentioned, everybody figured it was going to go this way anyway, are these countries already making these changes? I would think so. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how you know their legal uh, their legal eagles are are were looking at this. Maybe they they were swept up in the you know anti-Trump uh, sentiment and figured that the Supreme Court of the United States was going to somehow um, you know strike down the ban. Uh, maybe some have not started on this road, but I can guarantee you one thing right now. If they're going to be doing, if they're planning on any significant trade with the United States, if their nationals are in any way uh, intermingled with Americans, they have family here, they are going to do something because um, this president uh, doesn't kid around. When he says he's going to do something, he mostly does it. And uh, he put in this ban, he defended this ban, he took a lot of flack for this ban, he had riots in the streets and airports over this ban. Uh, and he has prevailed, and now he is a hundred times stronger than he was uh, 48 hours ago with respect to the border. So if they can't see that, um, you know, uh, I, I, I pity them because uh, they're just they're, their people are going to suffer. They're just not going to be able to get into the states, not easily, anyways. Uh, how will this victory empower Trump moving forward? Are you concerned about that? Um. You know, uh, at the end of the day, if, if if I can sort of summarize everything that's happened in the last year or two, this is all about the southern border, the wall, as as people call it. Uh, he said, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build a wall. And uh, the sound of that doesn't sound so good because, you know, we all imagine this massive wall. Of course, the wall means a border, uh, a separation between Mexico uh, and the United States in whatever form. It could be electronic, it could be a fence, it could be a gate, it could be whatever. But we're, we're calling it a wall. And he said very, very clearly in a bipartisan meeting, he said, I will look at comprehensive immigration reform. I will help you figure out a way to land all the DACA kids and the Dreamers. I will help you figure out you know, what we're going to do with all these TPS people who are in the United States, people who fled Haiti and all these other countries because of natural disasters and all, all kinds of things. I will do all of this, but not without that wall. If you don't fund that wall, we're not talking about anything. So now the Democrats have got to be on the ropes. Uh, having lost this battle, which they invested heavily in, uh, I think they're going to have to understand that asking for a secure border is not something outrageous. Um, they're going to have to deal with it. Uh, right now, the United States has an, uh, a population of uh, illegals in excess of 11 million. They are receiving 38,000 uh, illegals through the Mexican border, the southern border, by itself. Never mind those people who arrive by plane and who come from Canada, who come from all over the place uh, through their airports, etc. 38,000 just from the southern border. That's over 450,000 people per year that are going to the states without, without proper documentation. Everybody, I would think, a Republican and a Democrat, has to recognize that as a potential problem. And the Democrats are not going to be able to, to hide from that. They're going to have to do business with the Republicans, or he's going to make it very, very painful for them on any bill that comes up. 
Wow, it's certainly not getting any simpler. Giddy Mamam has been with us. Giddy, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.